everyone, my name is Gates. And I'm Kelsey. And welcome to Killer Country. Big news today in true crime. Have you heard? Yes, that the Zodiac Killer was yes. caught. Not caught because he died three years Suspected, ago. Suspected. But yes. yes. So they're working on connecting the crimes officially. I literally saw that like 20 minutes before you got here. I know. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I was getting my stuff all together to come over here as well. And I came, I saw it pop up on my phone. I was like, we have to cover. Yes. <laughs> Yes, so now we went from over 37 victims to now including all of the Zodiacs. Most prolific serial killer based on numbers is Samuel Little, and he's confessed confessed to 93 murders in more than 12 states over the course of like 35 years. So we have Gary Francis Post, who has the 37. Zodiac had five. So, I mean, he's obviously not as far as Sammy Little, but he's up there. He is definitely up there. Yeah. Big news today. Big news. <laughs> Seriously. And Okay. <laughs> I am so sorry if you guys hear my dogs barking in the background. Unfortunately, we slept in a little this morning, and my husband has to get in his eight hours at his job. So he's going to be working a little late while we record, and I don't have anyone to entertain my two boys. <laughs> That's all right. Background noise. Yep. I mean, who doesn't love a little, a few little dog barks here and That's there? That's right. Maybe Tats That's will right. start singing for us later on. <laughs> all right. So today we're in Alaska. Yes. We have gone from the middle of the south yep. to as far north as you can get. Seriously. And then, because this is an alphabetical um, podcast, we're going to do our cases in alphabetical order as well. So, today I am going to be in Anchorage, Alaska. And Kelsey, you said that you're going to be starting in Fairbanks and going somewhere. Starting mm-hmm. Just Yep, just close to Fairbanks. So. Okay, perfect. So, I will go ahead and get started off. And the first thing I want to say is I'm so frustrated at myself because I wanted to do this case. Just because I thought that he was caught for one of the most stupid reasons, not paying his taxi cab fare, but he wasn't. Someone else refused to pay their cab fare, and he was just walking by. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they caught him. Yeah, 4.30 in the morning, wrong place, wrong time. And I was just sitting there as I was doing my research, and I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Like Everything you thought completely out the window. Yeah. Oh, before you get started, sorry, I'm a little squirrely today. Um, We totally missed our opportunity last week in Alabama um, about Dr. Wilson. He didn't even see his murder coming. Oh my (laughs) gosh, the puns! (laughs) We missed our opportunity. I couldn't help but add it in. Yes. No, and like, I'm literally making eyeball puns like all through the day. Like, oh my gosh, it is so nice to see you. Like, oh wow. Yeah, so he didn't even see it coming. He didn't even see it coming. Oh, the puns. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about the pointless murders of five people today, including two double homicides, and the only thing linking these murders were the gun casings. So we're going to start off on July 3rd, 2016. Police responded at 7.42 early Sunday morning to a man and a woman that were found murdered on a bike trail near Ship Creek. And Ship Creek is a creek with name. So it took me a little bit to figure out. Bike trail is described as a wooded green belt belt along Ship Creek in an industrial warehouse area. It's used by cyclists, walkers, and sometimes tourists staying around Ship Creek. A police search team used metal detectors to look through a patch of woods between the trail and Ship Creek. Members of the local fire department did what was called a washdown of the scene. Have you ever heard of a local fire department doing a washdown of a scene? No. Do they literally wash? They literally spray water on it? They literally just hose it down. That doesn't seem like a great form of investigation. What? I guess it was done after, you know, the police went and did their things just to clean up the area. But what if you have to come back? I don't know. <laughs> you you don't ruined everything. <laughs> but, I mean, we have to also keep in mind that it was an area where a lot of people go through every day. Oh, okay. So they just didn't want the... Mm-hmm. They didn't want the blood yeah. and everything to kind of... So, in a statement by the Anchorage Police spokeswoman, Renee Oysted... 
She said the two individuals did not appear to have died from natural causes. Beyond that, we're still determining the cause of death and how it happened. So later, it was determined that the two deceased were Brianna Foise, 20, and Jason Netter Sr., 41. Brianna was homeless at the time and was having problems with drug abuse. Her adoptive mother had tried to intervene with Brianna, abusing drugs, but she denied the help that was offered. The only reason that I included that in this um, podcast was just because in the multiple different um, source materials that I used, mm-hmm. all of it said that exact same okay. thing. So I guess her mom was real, her adoptive mother was really trying to go through and help her with her problems. So she was, yeah, she was actively seeking treatment and, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. And then Brianna just kind of refused. But that's the thing about people who are abusing alcohol and drugs. They're not ready until they're ready. And there's nothing we can do to help. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Now, Jason Netter, on the other hand, was a father of two daughters. And he was having issues with child support and had multiple run-ins with the law, mainly for drug-related activity. So, according to Murderpedia, on July 5th, the deaths of Foise and Netter were ruled a double homicide by the Anchorage Police Department. So, this is... Two days later, they ruled it a double homicide after they found them with bullets or, like, gunshots, wounds. Well, wouldn't you assume that right off the bat? I would assume that right off the bat. You could, but, I mean, not necessarily because you could have a murder-suicide. You could have, I guess that's really your only other option Mm -hmm. is murder-suicide. For people that don't know each other. But I guess... yeah. It could just be a person doing murder-suicide on a person that they don't know. Yeah. But after hours of reviewing surveillance... Words. Words. (laughs) After After reviewing hours of surveillance footage, they released images of the two unidentified men who became persons of interest during the investigation. Now, these two men I do not have any information on, but I do know that they are not the people or the person that actually did this. Okay. So, just other shady characters in the area. Cool, Mm -hmm. cool, cool. Now, 26 days later, on July 29th, police received multiple calls around 3 in the morning reporting shots fired near Bolin Street and Dubin Avenue. So, when the police arrived on the scene, they found 21-year-old Trayvon Kendall. That's that's the first name. Okay. Trayvon Kendall Bobby Dwayne Thompson. Dead that's his full name. name? That's his full name. Trayvon Kendall Bobby Dwayne Johnson? Trayvon Kendall Bobby Dwayne Thompson. Thompson. Yes. That is a name for a king. That really is. <laughs> it is a long name. And I want you to keep his name in mind later on. Oh, I will, I will do my best. <laughs> Just, just try to keep two names in your head. So, in a statement from police spokeswoman Jennifer Castro, she said, We're still looking into it. Officers responded to the area and located a deceased male in the street. Police are investigating the death as a homicide, and no suspect is currently in custody at this time. Later, Castro said that Trayvon Kendall suffered multiple gunshot wounds. So it was said that he was riding his bike home from work when he was gunned down in East Anchorage. Multiple witnesses were interviewed, and the police were able to get enough statements and testimonials that they were able to create a composite sketch of the subject. Shortly after his murder, the Alaska State Crime Lab was able to connect the murder weapon to the murders of Brianna and Jason as well. So at least they're, like, moving forward with investigation. Mm -hmm. Like, unlike last week in Selma, where it was dead end after dead end, when there's ballistics, there's witnesses who won't come forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here, everyone came forward. Good. Like, everyone in the area. And I'll show you the, the composite sketch later, mm-hmm. because it looks very much like the person who did this. Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, and I'll explain to you later the reason why he wasn't on the radar and things sure. like that. So, 30 days later, on August 28th, officers responded to a call just before 2 a.m. after a woman reported that she found two dead bodies. So when the officers were seen, they found one body riddled with bullets under a pavilion in the park and another down in the valley. Neighbors reported hearing gunshots the night before on a neighborhood social media site called Nextdoor. Oh, have you ever heard of I that? I have. So I've gotten invitations in our neighborhood, but I've never actually joined it. Are you a member of it? I am not. Um, we actually have a neighborhood Facebook group, but I heard a lot of people use will we'll use Nextdoor if they need like 
like help around the house, like little projects like that people use next door. Okay. And then I've also heard it used for um, like neighborhood security. Oh. Like people will have their watch groups or whatever on there so that they can report if there's been a break-in or um, suspicious activity near their home or whatever. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's basically what it was used for because it was multiple neighbors on that side that had reported hearing gunshots. Wow. So around 8.45, now this is over six and a half hours later, uh, the Anchorage Fire Department arrived and crews moved the picnic tables. So after they hosed down the picnic tables, a report from Anchorage Daily News said the water pouring off it turned bright red. Oh, wow. So it was insane what happened there. Now, a little while later, members of the Anchorage Police Department search team were on the scene with metal detectors. The men were later identified as Kevin Turner, 34, and Bryant DeHewson, 25. Kevin Turner was homeless at the time because he had not fared well, and that's in quotations, mm -hmm. at the assisted living facilities that at the assisted living facilities he was at because of his schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. That's a really hard one though. I, I worked a long time in, in elderly care, senior care, mm -hmm. and that is probably one of the hardest because oftentimes they're a little bit younger than most of the other residents, so they don't really connect. And then on top of that, the medication for schizophrenia bipolar is it's a never-ending test. Yeah. Basically, you're, you're constantly going through trials, what works, what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And we had a resident with schizophrenia, and most of the day, he would come out and be the most pleasant. He, he's everybody's best friend. He's bringing candies. He's just, he is light, light of your life. Mm -hmm. And then at whatever time that the meds wore off or he flipped switches, he didn't want to talk to you. He wouldn't look at you. He would not let you in his room. I mean, it's just completely different person. It's, yeah. it's crazy to witness. And I mean, that's if they even get the correct diagnosis in the mm -hmm. first place. Because with my mom, she uh, was diagnosed as having mm -hmm. But whenever everything kind of came to light, it turns out she had like BPD, bipolar disorder, like yeah. three or four, like one of the more severe ones. Wow. And things could have stopped from happening if she would have actually gotten the correct diagnosis. Been diagnosed and treated for the correct thing. Mm -hmm. So with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, like it's, they really need as much help as they can get medication wise yeah. and just trying to get the help that they needed. And unfortunately, if they don't, things like this can happen. They'll mm -hmm. end up homeless, they'll end up on the street. Well, and it's such a small group that knows how to care for them as well, especially when they've gotten into their older years and they need more dependent care. Mm -hmm. People aren't equipped to deal with that. No. And our healthcare system is not designed to equip people to take care of people like that. People, people in general. The yeah. American healthcare yes. system. Right. Like, people in general. <laughs> so I went to the emergency room uh, a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. and I am just, I'm, I don't even want to know how much I over that. Like, Ugh. we have good insurance through my husband. Yeah. That's going to be a nightmare trying to figure out. Like, even with insurance, I'm still going to have to pay, like, a couple thousand dollars. Yeah, well, they charge you, like, pr practically just to walk in the door and take up a chair. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. Yep. Now, back to um, the murders. Now, um, Brian DeHewson was a notable <coughs> environmental activist, according to his father, Gordon. And at the time, he was riding his new Schwinn bike to meet a friend in the area. Ooh, a Schwinn. A Schwinn. He had fancy wheels. A fancy, that's fancy. <laughs> I actually had to look up what that was. Because I am not a bicycle person. Was his one of the classic, like, banana bikes? It was blue. Okay. I don't know what you mean by a banana bike, They're like, like with the big <gasps> handlebars. Oh, yeah. no. It no. Wasn't. Oh, oh, I love those, though. <laughs> but um, the police did find his bike in there. Now, the only thing that both of these victims had in common was that they were both in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was absolutely nothing else tying these two people together. Because of all of these random murders being linked together and nothing to tie them together other than the gun casings, mm -hmm. police issued an advisory notice for the citizens to avoid isolated trails after dark. Because all of these seem to take place like super late at night or super early in the morning. 
Sure. So the police also ended up bringing in the FBI to assist at this point as well. So, 76 days later, on November 12th, Officer Salau... Is that... Is that Salau? Salau. Salau. Thank you. Thank you for hearing that earlier. <laughs> Officer Salau? Salau. <laughs> oh, wow. Officer, I don't think he'll mind, though. Yeah. Okay, Officer Salau responded to an unrelated, an unrelated report of an unpaid taxi fare. I'm going to repeat that again because I'm just... Everything you thought you knew was wrong. But I'm so, like, annoyed slash just Tack. Tack is upset, too. He feels your pain. He, he can tell with you. that Mama is angry over here. So he's like, Mom, let me in the room. Like, please, I I'll can protect help you. you. So um, he responded to an unrelated report of an unpaid taxi fare when he spotted a man at 4.30 in the morning. He pulled up alongside the man and asked if he had seen the crime of someone walking away without paying their cab fare. It's literally all he did. And the man blatantly ignored the officer. Like, just kept walking. How? What? <laughs> that just draws immediate suspicion to you. Yes, like, very sus. So, uh, he ignored him, he kept on walking, and it prompted the officer to repeat the question over the megaphone. Now, I don't know if he should have done it over the megaphone, or, I don't, obviously I'm not a police officer, I do not know their protocols. Tap. Shh. Do you want to pause for a second? Yes. Okay. Okay, we have solved our tactical problem. He's now a part of the podcast. And protecting his mama exactly. against the unpaid cab fares. Can you, can you say hi? No, you have to say hi. You can't just nod it. <laughs> Good boy. Thank you for that tactical. Okay. So, let's see. Um, he repeated the question over his megaphone, and this got the man's attention. He actually turned around and opened fire on the police officer. Oh my gosh, just out of the blue? Out of the blue. The megaphone just ticked him off. He could have just walked away. He could have walked away. He could have turned around and said, no, officer, I know nothing about this. I just got here. Yeah. 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 So he hit the police officer at least four times, injuring his bones. I don't know how, like, I guess it got in his bone, bone fragments, whatever, in his intestines and his liver. Yikes. So even though the officer was hit, he still got out of his patrol car while returning fire and engaged in a freaking physical confrontation with this man. This, this police officer's a badass. <laughs> he is the baddest <laughs> of the badass. Now, while all this was happening, another person, um, Sergeant Patsky of the K-9 unit, spotted the confrontation and tried to help his fellow officer. So, Officer Salau. 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 Oh my gosh. <laughs> You'll get it. You'll get it at least one time. I will get it one time. So, like, you would expect me, of all people, to remember the small things about a person's name because my name is literally Gates. I mean, like, you've spent so long explaining it that you feel like others need to explain theirs, too. It's yeah, all right. Maybe that's, maybe that's it. I mean, I've only heard this man's name, like, 16 times from you and from the video that I watched telling me how to say it. <laughs> Salau. Salau, Salau, Salau. I even wrote out how to say it, too. Salau. <laughs> the pronunciations. Oh, my gosh. So, <laughs> Officer Salau was taken to an area hospital where he was moved to the ICU after seven hours of surgery. Holy. Like, I... So, I thought that seven hours of surgery is a lot of time for a surgery, mm-hmm. but then I found out that, like, heart surgeries can take, on average, like, 14 hours. Oh, my gosh. Like, open heart surgery. So, I don't know if this is considered long for a shooting. But well, you said bones, so I was supposed to have to fix that. And then the liver, don't they just, like, um, chop a piece of yeah, it or something? Yeah, like, chop the, the injured part off because the liver rejuvenates mm-hmm. to an extent. But the intestines. Yeah. Well, oh. maybe he's got a colostomy now. Oh, maybe. Now, as for the other man on the scene... The one that engaged in the shooting, he was dead at the scene. Now, let me tell you about the shooter. His name is James Dale Ritchie. We all know James. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This James is kind of the worst of the worst. 
So, he was born November 4th, 1976. He grew up in Alaska and went to school at East Anchorage High School, where his former teachers and coaches said he was a standout athlete. He was one athlete. He was a standout athlete. He played in the 1994 state. He was not multiple athletes. He's a one-man team. We play basketball. It's one person. You got point guard. You got you got your center. You got everybody in one. Not only that, but he played basketball and football at the same time. So not only was he getting touchdowns, he was also getting... He dribbled that ball in for a touchdown. My football, my football employed husband would be so proud. Yes, he would be. I have learned so much since moving to the state of Alabama about football. Oh, more than it's I... very serious here. Oh my gosh, it is. And I guess at this point we also have to say roll, roll tide. tide. So um, James played in the 1994 state championship in both basketball and football. He was six foot three, so obviously mm-hmm. he had to be a basketball player. And Richie also scored a 1,200 on his SAT and was recruited by West Virginia for their football team that same year. Hmm. So I want you to think about what I said earlier. About the king? Yes. (laughs) Kendall? What was his name again? Trayvon. Trayvon, Kendall, Kendall, Dwayne. Bobby. Oh, I forgot Bobby. Dang. Bobby Dwayne Thompson. Yes. So, while still living in Alaska, Richie was close friends with two people, Quincy and Bobby Thompson. Really? Yep. So, he, he killed spent, his friend? He spent... No. Oh. No. Oh. Worse. Oh, what? So, he spent so much of his time with their family. They hosted him often through his teen, year, teen years. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, Bobby Thompson... And Trayvon Kendall, Bobby Dwayne Thompson. It was his father. Or what? it was Bobby Thompson is Trayvon Kendall's father. He no, killed No, his best friend's son. Yeah. That's terrible. It's it's so upsetting. And like this guy wasn't even on their radar at the time. So he did actually lose touch with um, Bobby after moving to West Virginia. Mm-hmm. But Richie dropped out after one, only one semester at West Virginia University and returned home to become a drug dealer. Oh, and went great by life choices. Can, okay, so you know how people are nicknamed by what they're not? Yeah. Can you tell me what you think his nickname was? His drug dealer <laughs> nickname, whatever you want to call it, it was tiny. Tiny. I'm like, not a scholar. I don't know. He <laughs> yeah. dropped out of school. <laughs> That's a good point. But yeah, so his name was Tiny. So he was arrested a number of times, mainly for drug-related offenses. And after his last sin in prison in 2007, he acquired a Colt Python handgun. Mm-hmm. So in 2013, this is the part that I don't understand. So I guess he illegally acquired this Colt Python because mm-hmm. he had been to prison. But in 2013, he lent his handgun to a friend and moved to Broadway, Virginia. And he stayed there as a law-abiding citizen until 2016 when his girlfriend broke up with him. And at that point, he moved back to Alaska where he was reunited with his, reunited with his Colt Python. The same gun. Same gun. He was reunited with his gun. Maybe he just had, like, he bought it in a bad, bad vibe and so it just, like, carried that vibe for him. Maybe, but after his death, the colt was used, the colt that was used on the police officer, it was sent to the Alaska Crime Lab and was found to have been the same murder weapon to kill all five victims. Mm -hmm. And it took about 78 hours after finding this out to contact all the victims' families and host a press conference announcing the connection between the murders Mm -hmm. and the attempt on the officer's life. Was Bobby Thompson still alive when they announced that his son had died? Yes. But at the hands of his ex-best friend? Yes. I'm, I'm telling you, though, a best friend breakup is serious. It is. I broke up with... So, my best friend and I were actually kind of reunited. Oh. But whenever we were in high school, we broke up because mm-hmm. of this demon of a girl. Because, you know, high school girl mm-hmm. drama. And it was so upsetting because I literally went to text her all the time. Like, wanting to tell her, oh, this happened. All the oh, things. Oh, so-and-so yeah. looked at me, blah, 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 blah. 
But it's like, wait, I can't, I can't tell her we're fighting. I know. Like a best friend breakup is the worst. I think it's just as bad for boys too. Mm-hmm. Well, not only that, but turns out, you know, and he was just going around and killing these random people. So it's not like he sought him out, which is yeah, the most that's crazy. Part. That he just came across the the one person that he had a connection to. Yep. Well, that's the ultimate of best friend breakups, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But that is the story of James Dale Ritchie and the murder of those five people that unfortunately were in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's, That's wild. It's wild. That's wild something that you just like, you just decide to shoot somebody. Yeah. Just that person. And of course, because he died in that shootout mm-hmm. or he died we'll in never know confrontation, why. we don't know why, we don't know how, we know nothing other than he did it. That's crazy. It's it's insane. And there's even potential that we, I mean, we're going to say he did it because that's what everybody, that's what the reports say. Mm-hmm. But, like, he had a time when his gun wasn't in his hand, so maybe, like, he was continuing to loan it. Just playing devil's advocate here. He could have, but I think the fact that it was on him at the point yeah. that he killed the officer. They were so close together. Yeah. That's true. So, I... You always play devil's advocate, and you always give me the thing. Thought provoking. Yes. What do you guys think? What What yeah, is your answer? Your do you think he did it? Do you think he didn't do it? I don't know. And he, he at least did some of it. He did. Yeah. And you know, know that I'm over here, and I'm distressed, and my dog is just over there laying on the ground, living his staring best at life. me. But he's not even laying on his dog bed. No, next to it. Next to it. Just, just <laughs> That's all he needed. He just needed to be close. Didn't want to lay under the fan. No. So, I love Alaska. Mm-hmm. I've never been to Alaska. I want to go so bad. <laughs> I know. Those Alaskan cruises look wonderful. Beautiful. Um, I love Alaska for one reason. And, well, many reasons now that I've become older. But Alaska has become my favorite since I was, like, probably... Two. Oh. Because of Balto. Oh, okay. Do you know what Balto is? Isn't that a... a oh, I'm going to tell you. Don't dog? worry. I'm going to tell you. It's a movie. <laughs> it's the best movie. <laughs> it is the most underrated children's movie of all time. Okay. And I don't care what anybody else says. Thumbelina was. I disagree. Balto. <laughs> <laughs> I used to watch it on VHS for literal hours on end. Anyone in my family can attest to it. Hours on end. And we had one of those VHS players that would um, that would re- rewind it at the end and then pop it back out. So all I had to do is pop it back in. Okay. And we play over and over and over again. So I think I've seen Balto. But I have very like faint memories of it because I just Well, that's okay. I'm going to give you a whole synopsis of the movie. <laughs> Perfect. For all of our listeners who have not not seen Balto, but you need to. <laughs> so Balto is a half dog, half wolf who lives in Nome, Alaska. And in in Nome, there was a diphtheria outbreak, and they just and all the trains got stranded because the weather was bad. It's Alaska, of course. It yeah, bad. the weather's always bad. <laughs> and so the city selected a dog sled team to deliver the medication from where the trains got stuck to Nome so that everybody didn't die of diphtheria. Mm-hmm. Well, all of the other dogs on the dog sled team were bullies and wouldn't let Balto run with them. Even though he was the fastest runner and knew the area because he's a wolf, they didn't like him because he was a mutt. Oh, isn't, hateful. I know, isn't that horrible? I know, breaks your little heart. Oh. Well, eventually um, the, the, the bully dogs go and they get lost Good. and stranded. Good. Good. We don't have time for bullies. <laughs> and they get stranded and Balto saves them and delivers the medication to Nome and it's all wonderful. Good. It actually is historically accurate as well. Oh, with wow. a little bit of creative liberties, of course. Obviously. Um, there actually was a diphtheria outbreak that occurred in the 1920s. And due to the location of towns like Nome and so many other towns in Alaska where they're just so rural, so far from 
everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Diseases like this would completely spread and take over the entire town, like, in the blink of an eye. Oh, wow. So, in 1925, with this diphtheria outbreak, they actually did select 20 different sled dog teams to carry the medication 674 miles through the difficult weather and terrain, and they did it in 127 hours. Oh my gosh, I are know. such good boys. I know. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, this 674 miles became part of the Iditarod. That is still current. They do it every year. If you didn't know, you can see a life-size statue of Balto in New York City Central Park, and I definitely cried when I saw it. Oh, <laughs> I might too. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, he's yeah. the goodest of the good boys. The only reason I ever wanted to visit Alaska was for polar bears and the aurora borealis. <laughs> but now there's Balto. Oh, now but there's the aurora borealis is what leads him home to his little girlfriend. Oh. I told you creative liberties, but yes. it's so worth it. <laughs> Now that you are well-versed on the most incredible movie of all time. I'll have to watch it. Yes, you do. Um, You may want to know how in any way it's related to true crime or the case that I'm covering. Yes, please tell me. (laughs) But I promise it is. It's okay if it isn't. (laughs) So the case I'm covering takes place primarily in Manly Hot Springs and the surrounding area. And Manly was actually one of the stopping points during this original medication run to Nome. So they used it, like, not to, there's no fuel with dogs, but, like, to refuel their bodies and feed the dogs and rest and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it's actually still a central location for a ton of dog sled activity. And, yes, it does have hot springs. Very nice. Yeah. The current population of Manly Hot Springs, as of 2019, that was the most current one um, number I could find, is 44. Oh, wow. That is so populated. <laughs> I know, I know. It is booming. Um, at the time that this case was unfolding between 1980 and 1990, the population was between 61 and 96. Um, oh. be- the reason for the discrepancy is because Manly did not actually become a census-designated place until 1980. So the record- recording of the census was a little bit new during that time so a little bit inaccurate but every report that I read on the case um said that it was around 70 so that's what we're gonna go with 70 people in the town of Manly in 1984. Our story uh starts actually outside of Fairbanks Alaska on April 28th 1984. Fairbanks was about 160 miles east of Manly and at the time um, would have been about five hours of travel. Now is this dog sledding? Nope. Five hours? Driving. We're oh, in nine, yeah, we're in we moved 80s. up. We moved up to the eighties now. I mean dog sledding's still a thing though. Like Yeah. Keep up with the Iditarod every year. Okay. <laughs> we'll we'll try to make this a thing. Yeah. Just watching it every year. Yeah, they give you updates and like there's webcams now and you can literally see the sleds come through. It's wonderful. Oh my gosh. I feel like there was a Disney movie based on this. Like not this, but like a live action. Oh, what was the Oh, not Cool Runnings. That was the Jamaican bobsled team. Um, Five Below. Five Below, yes. Yes. That's exactly what it was. Yes. That's what I think of. So, on this day in April, a woman was out chopping wood and chatting with her neighbor, 28-year-old Roger Culp, when a man walked up to them, completely unannounced, picked up a stick, and beat it against the chopping block that she was using. Viciously, like, just beat the hell out of the chopping block. Rude. He said, this is how you do it, and then walked away. <laughs> what? Yeah. You're just beating it with a stick. This is how you do it. Yep, just beat the hell out of it, and this is how you do it, and left. Mansplaining at its finest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can't, like, I, yeah, I can't imagine anyone just walking up to me unannounced, for one, and then, two, just like, Picking up a stick and starting beating something that I'm using. Like, this is how you do it. <laughs> Rude. Like someone just coming up to you at work, hitting something with a pin. This is how you do it. I know. At least this make yourself known. Way. Like, hey, here I am. Mm-hmm. This is who I am. Here are my credentials. <laughs> this is how I know. This is how you do it. Mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a studied, a studied lumberjack. Yes. So the woman said she and Culp were both caught very off guard by the sudden outburst by this stranger and said she was terrified of him, which, I mean, 
I would probably be a little frightened if somebody did that to me as well. I can imagine there was there was bark flying and it was probably loud. Yeah. I don't do well with loud noises, so I mean, I'd be scared. Roger, on the other hand, was pissed. Um, he thought that it was completely out of out of line for this man to approach them in that way and then carry out the actions that he did. Mm-hmm. So the woman said she tried to talk Roger out. This woman is unnamed, by the way. So that's why I'm calling her the woman. woman. (laughs) So the woman said she tried to talk Roger out of following him, but he told her that he'd be back in 15 minutes and he was going to handle the issue. Oh. So we've got some men going head to head here. They're upset. Yes. To say the least. The next day, another neighbor of this man, this crazy man who the unannounced would smack him, Mm -hmm. um, her name was Wendy Hooker went to his cabin to confront him about a moose hide that she thought he had stolen from her property. She saw a small pool of blood in the snow and assumed it was from a recent small animal kill, um, which this is very common in this part of Alaska, this rural area, the kind of the wilderness, the back backwoods of Alaska. Um, so she didn't really think anything of it. The neighbor did not come to the door and When she walked around back, Wendy saw a significantly larger pool of blood that was not just out in the open. It actually soaked through the footsteps as she walked through it. What? Because the snow had fallen and covered it. Oh my god! So it was so big and so fresh. It was like three by six feet. And it was so fresh that as she walked across the new fallen snow, it soaked through. Oh my gosh, that is a lot. Yes. Like I said, it was reportedly between three by six feet, and from my personal experience, hides alone don't usually have this much blood, but I've also never seen a moose hide, so I don't exactly know, but that's my, just gonna put my, put that out there. I've seen zero (laughs) hides, so I know zero. Usually they're not that bloody. So, to Wendy, this confirmed that he had stolen the moose hide, and she knew he was there. She just, like, he didn't answer the door. He she, he didn't make any noises inside, but she just knew he was there. Mm-hmm. And he was just avoiding her because he had stolen her moose hide. Mm-hmm. So, Wendy told her friend Tom that her neighbor had stolen her moose hide, and she wanted it back. Tom then goes to the cabin, sees the same blood, but this time, the homeowner answers the door. Oh, imagine yeah, that. I know. He admits to stealing the hide and promised he'd give it back. Great. Awesome. Wonderful. Neighbor. So does that explain the blood? <laughs> right. Tom and Wendy then go tell their other friend Dawn. We've got like some small town little gossiping going on. Yes. Did you hear that she said that he said? So they tell Dawn what had happened and about the abnormally large pool of blood mm-hmm. at this guy's cabin. And the three of them then realize that their neighbor Roger had disappeared. They're kind of now putting it all together like, oh, wait, we saw all this blood and we haven't seen Roger today. Roger Culp was the guy who went to confront him. But remember, none of these people knew anything about the confrontation the day before. So they're just kind of making assumptions at this point. Mm -hmm. They call state troopers and they try to explain that this man had stolen a moose hide. They went to talk to him. Their neighbor was missing and they thought they were connected. But the police completely misunderstood what they were saying. And they thought that they said Culp, Roger Culp, had gone to this guy's house and murdered him and then fled. So they're assuming that this homeowner is dead, not Roger. Oh. April 29th, 1984, Alaska State Troopers arrived to the home just outside of Fairbanks to speak to the homeowner about missing Roger Culp. And at this time, remember, they're presuming that this homeowner is probably dead. So when they arrived, they saw the snowbank, but there was not nearly as much blood as before. But remember, we're in Alaska. Mm -hmm. Snow happens. Um, The moose hide theory actually played out because they decided to dig in the snowbank and found one buried. It seemed to be accurate. Mm -hmm. However, due to the presence of blood and the report that they got that this homeowner had been murdered... The state troopers believed that the homeowner was in danger, so they they did investigate. They started looking around, they knocked on the cabin, and when they knocked a second time, out popped the head of the homeowner. Mm. This homeowner was Michael Silka, alive and well. He told the state troopers he had recently skinned a moose, 
and it was nothing to worry about. So the small amount of blood that they saw made sense. They found a moose hide. It all made sense. The man was alive. Mm-hmm. You know, now they just have a missing supposed murderer. So, yeah. but because he, the other guy's alive, he's not a murderer. So are they he's just missing? That? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Again, considering the report they got was that Silka had been murdered, they went on their way, and because he was obviously just fine. Mm-hmm. Nine days later, nine days, nine, nine days later, wow. the neighbor who had been approached by Silka at the wood chopping block, that whole situation, the lady, the unnamed woman, came forward. She said after Culp had been gone for a short while, she heard gunshots and immediately ran to her own cabin locked the door and stayed there with a shotgun by the door for two days. I mean, I don't blame her. But nine days? She's going to wait nine days to tell somebody? Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know. Like, maybe she didn't realize how fast time was passing because she waited there for two days. Yeah, but then she waited an entire week after she came out of the house. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I agree. I would probably hide too, mm-hmm. especially being in close proximity. But you can't wait nine days. So troopers immediately returned to Silka's cabin with a warrant and found it completely deserted. Completely empty like no one had lived there. Wow. And Silka was nowhere to be found, of course. They tested the blood in the snow and confirmed it was human. Oh. And that's where we're going to stop for just a minute. So, I'm going to tell you, who is Michael Silka? He was a native to Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Grew up loving the outdoors and especially loved hunting and firearms. One of his earliest recorded run-ins with the law, he was actually 17, and he and another kid were arrested for trying to steal camping equipment and weapons from a sporting goods store. Mm. He was then arrested two years later, shortly before graduating high school, for bringing an antique muzzle-loading rifle through a public park. Loaded. I'm going to tell you unprofessionally about (laughs) (laughs) what, what what this is. I have no experience. The only experience I have is personal. I don't have any sort of like educational background mm-hmm. on this, but I'm just putting that out there. Um, I did grow up hunting and I did use a muzzleloader during deer hunting season. I'm a little bit more familiar with that compared to other guns like shotguns and stuff I never really used. Mm-hmm. Muzzle loaders, I feel are my, my sole opinion is that I feel they're a little bit more authentic when it comes to hunting practices. Um, with some of these guns, you know, you have multiple, you have, um, multiple cartridges in at once. You have I'm assuming words. like a muzzleloader is going to be one where it like <laughs> breaks Clips. in half and then you stick it in. No. Nope. one that you just stick it in the top. Stick it in the top is right. So the one that breaks in half is a shotgun. The muzzleloader. <laughs> <laughs> and here I said I know guns. The muzzleloader is actually, you get one shot. And you actually have to load the gunpowder, the bullet, and a primer into the top. Of, well, the primer doesn't go in the top, but the gunpowder and the bullet go in the top, and you have to like physically pound it into place. So, like Civil War. Exactly. Okay. Like and that's what I mean by like a little bit more authentic. Like you don't have like a hundred rounds to shoot a deer. You, you have, have one a shot. Stove or anything right. Like it's that. not like a shotgun where it's because some like buckshot has multiple bullets that come out, so it covers a wide area. And a muzzleloader, you have one shot, one precise location. So, the word I was looking for was clips. You don't have multiple bullets or clips. <laughs> They're not fast firing. It's a one and done kind of deal. Like I said, he was arrested for bringing that type of gun through a, a public park. Mm. Um, he was then arrested for the exact same reason within the same year. Are you serious? Yes. Oh my the God. only punishment he received for the second crime, no punishment for the first one, was a $100 fine. Oh, at least it's better than a slap on the wrist, because that's <laughs> yeah. what I was going for. <laughs> he got a slap on the wrist for the first one. Ugh. So after being convicted for carrying these loaded weapons through public spaces, wow. he then decides he's going to enlist in the military. Great spot for him. Obviously a very good place for him to be, since mm-hmm. he's so interested in these weapons. Yeah. Not. Um, the military ended up being the reason he was actually drawn to Alaska in the first place. He was stationed there just east of Fairbanks at Fort Wainwright. And while in basic training, he was rated an expert marksman using an M16 rifle and grenade launcher. Wow. He ended up being discharged due to an assault charge and for firing a weapon inside the barracks. Wow. (laughs) Yes. He very clearly can't stay away from guns. No. He's way too obsessed. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he then went back to working odd jobs in Illinois until he was arrested for carrying a 44 caliber revolver and a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol and two knives on him during a routine traffic stop. Holy He's just cow. like packing on these weapons. Like, is he scared of something? What's going on? <laughs> At no reports did he say that he he's not they claim that he's not mentally ill but i mean i feel like he's very clearly mentally ill mm -hmm. um but yeah there's no reports that he's like seen things being chased by anyone he didn't have any reported enemies nothing like that oh my gosh for this crime he only spent four days in county jail and <laughs> <laughs> and he was arrested again for weapons and eventually skipped that bond and ran back to Alaska. Oh my so God. he played out as much time as he could without getting actual time in Illinois and then decided to move on to Alaska. Wow. Now we are back in Alaska in 1984. Um, we encounter our first forementioned crime against Roger Culp in April 1984. Mm -hmm. Now evading police yet again, Silka shows up in Manly Hot Springs. So, a reminder that this is a population of about 70 people. Mm -hmm. um, I have more people living in my neighborhood than that. So. Yeah. I'm sure I do as well. Yeah. He was spotted driving a 1974 Dodge Monaco, carrying a ton of camping equipment and an aluminum canoe on top. He appeared like any other guy. Again, this is super common in the area, so people are very outdoorsy. And he looked like he was just going on a camping trip in the Alaskan wilderness and... He was in the, a great spot for it. It's very rural. Lots of There's rivers around. It's just a great area. Um, what was uncommon was that he was also carrying multiple guns and many rounds of ammunition with him. A manly resident named Robert E. Lee. <laughs> Not the Robert E. Lee. The wrong just century. A, just A Robert E. Lee. <laughs> yes, just A Robert E. Lee. <laughs> said Silka told people he was planning to settle in the area for good. That there is a, And there is a record that he did rent a small shack on the edge of Fairbanks. For all accounts, he was doing that. And it was literally the most remote shack that you can find in the area. It was on the outskirts of Fairbanks and neighbors were not nearby. But the neighbors he did have thought he was strange and like knew he had bad energy. Mm -hmm. um, people also saw him loitering around the Tanana. Tanana, I believe that's how you say it. Um, T-A-N-A-N-A. -N -A -N -A. It's like banana with a T. Yeah. Tanana. <laughs> the Tanana River boat landing all the time. Um, this boat landing was a few miles out of town and appeared that Silka did not spend a whole lot of time at the shack that he had been renting and had like a tent and everything set up at this boat landing. So it seemed more like he was settling kind of this direction than he was towards Fairbanks. Mm -hmm. um, he'd also take his canoe out often. The same resident, Robert E. Lee, said six people went to the boat landing between 2 and 4 o'clock on May 17th, 1984. Um, now, this time in Alaska, we've still got lots of ice and snow. So, mm -hmm. um, it's not like Alabama where it snows for an inch and it's gone the next day. Yeah. We've got lots built up. <laughs> um, and no one realized that none of these people had returned until the next day. So residents of Manly then called the state troopers over from Fairbanks because Manly didn't have state troopers. The nearest ones were five hours away in Fairbanks. And they began their investigation. Since Silka had meandered through town and around the boat landing so often, people did know like what he looked like and what car he drove. And there was even one woman who knew his license plate number and oh, wow. like full description of him. Um, they immediately gave it to police, said, hey, this guy's weird. We all notice it. There's only 70 people there, so yeah. they know what sticks out like a sore thumb. Mm -hmm. um, when they ran his plates, it showed the same vehicle was in connection with the dis disappearance and suspected murder of Roger Culp. And the investigation quickly moved over to the boat landing where they found blood and bullet casings. Oh. The six missing people would be identified as Fred Burke, Albert Hagen, Joyce Klein, Lyman Klein, Marshall Klein, Dale Majetsky, and Larry Joe McVeigh. So what happened on May 17th, 1984? Someone got angry. <laughs> he said, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. <laughs> yeah. So sometime between 12 and 2.30, Fred Burke, 
actually um, drove his boat up from where he was camping upriver and was planning to do some work on a truck he had parked at a garage. That was the first one. Second group arrived around 2.30. Joey McVeigh and Dale Majetsky arrived to the landing with McVeigh's boat, planning to go out. Majetsky was 24 years old, lived close by with his wife, Kristen. McVeigh lived across the river from Manly with his wife, Alice, and was actually a medically discharged Vietnam War vet. Not long after Joey and Dale arrived, Albert Hagen arrived to the boat landing, and he was actually just there to dump a bunch of brush off into the river. Um, I guess that's a thing. And following Hagen, the, the times are a little bit off just because we know what time the first person got there, and then we know what time everything was done. Mm -hmm. So there's not an exact time frame on what time these families arrived. Um, but following Hagen, the Klein family arrived via four-wheeler. 36-year-old Lyman, 30-year-old wife Joyce, and two-year-old two son Marshall mm -hmm. were going on a family outing, and Joyce was pregnant with their second child at the time. Oh, God. Yeah. Then, a woman arrived with a group of children around four, and they were actually planning to watch the ice chunks break apart on the river, and they kind of sore off as soon as they break away mm -hmm. so they were just out there for a little while um, when they arrived the boat landing was completely empty and she did report seeing what we now know as silka's car and it had the canoe kind of half hanging off the front like somebody was trying to unload it and then stopped mm -hmm. um and when they returned to leave from watching the river the canoe was completely gone so somebody had been there during that time and she didn't see who it was mm -hmm. Um, when Joey did not return that evening, his wife Alice drove over to the landing, saw his, his truck, um, boat was still on the trailer, and six pack of beer was still in the truck, so mm -hmm. they clearly had not even gotten on the river. Mm -hmm. um, when he's, I bet he's also a grown man, so when he, she waited, and when he did not make it home by noon the following day, she immediately called Fairbanks State Troopers. Mm -hmm. She was told it had only been at this time around 24 hours and he'd likely show up. Wait, no. After 24 hours, aren't you supposed to be able to do a missing persons report? Well, they did not let her put in a missing person. They did take the note. They, they wrote down that she had called and that she had reported him missing but told her just to wait. He'd likely show up. And he didn't. That's so, frustrating. It is. So, like a domino effect, um, all of the other families of the victims started to notice that they weren't home and began to worry. Without the help of any police, they all rallied together to compare their own notes, their own reports, what time their loved one had gone, what time they should have been home and weren't, um, and what they were gonna do next. One of the family members decided that they were gonna go check out the boat landing again just to see if anyone had made it back. Mm -hmm. um, because at this point, they don't know that anyone has been attacked. You know, maybe the something happened on the river. There's a blockage in the river and they're all caught upstream or something terrible has happened and they're all trying to help one another. So you don't really know what's going on. Um, but this person did see another empty vehicle and thought this could be another missing person. So they called in the license plate number and it was Silka's vehicle. The troopers identified it to be and immediately it put it on the top of their radar because he was wanted for questioning in the disappearance of Roger Culp. Mm -hmm. So finally the search was on. They were finally starting to look for him. Um, they brought in helicopters and were actively searching the Tanana River. Their search did not start until 2 a.m. But in Alaska at this time, it's completely daylight out. Oh. So they had, they, which is kind of fortunate because here a lot of searches like that will stop at dark because it's just not safe. Mm -hmm. But you have so many hours of daylight there, so they were able to not only start at 2 a.m., but go all day. Yeah. So it came to be good for them. Um, they did find human blood and drag marks all over um, at the boat landing and leading up to the river. They also found, like I said, um, the spent bullet casings and um, they began to monitor the river by helicopter and actually came across Joe Burke's wife. She was the only one not involved with the group of family members because she was at the campground where he had left her. Mm. So she waved him down and told him her husband had been missing since the night before. And they told her then that there are six other people missing and they believe it to be Silka. 
So she got involved. Um, they did find Silka after spotting his canoe tied to a tree. He was about 25 miles upstream with his own canoe and the boat of one of the missing people. And the state troopers from the helicopter, so there's nobody on the ground at this point, they're all in this helicopter, um, ask him to surrender. And I really imagine this being as like, we can do this the easy way, we can do this the hard way. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how I picture this. And Soka chose the hard way. Of course. Yep, he declined to surrender. And the way he declined to surrender is by shooting his single shot rifle at one of the helicopters. So he got one shot, but his one shot shot and killed one of the troopers because it hit him directly in the face. What the heck? I know. I know. So from the ground, he just shot up in the air and hit this trooper. And the bullet fragments actually injured one of the captains as well because it ricocheted and hit him in the face also. Um, Luckily, there was another trooper on board who returned fire with an M16 and struck Silka eight times, killing him. A couple of weird things here. The M16 was that same weapon that Silka had been rated as an expert marksman with in boot camp. Happened to be the one that killed him. And some of the troopers who were, some of the other troopers who were present compared to the encounter as, quote, being like combat of the Vietnam War. They said it lasted two seconds with 25 rounds, two people dead, and one injured. I had to look and see, like, what they meant by combat being like the Vietnam War. Like, I, did, I guess I didn't know a whole lot about what that combat was like. Mm-hmm. Um, all wars are obviously awful. Like, yeah. We, it's not good for either side. It's just terrible. But typically both sides fight at the same level in regard to weapons, tactics, because that kind of advances, like, with technology and the times. Mm -hmm. Um, But Vietnam was very different, apparently. American troops had way more advanced technology, like, like, we're talking decades difference. Um, And they had the clear upper hand in combat. The plan was to go head-to-head, basically just overrun the Viet Cong, and it'd be over. Mm -hmm. But what happened was the Viet Cong avoided all large conflicts because they knew they would be overpowered and their approach had more of a psychological attack on American troops because they set booby traps, landmines on pretty much every inch of the battlefield. So American troops, everywhere they went, it was fear that they were going to end up in one of these booby traps or landmines and die that way. Sorry, I know this isn't funny, but each time that you say booby traps, I automatically think of the Goonies. Whenever <laughs> Dad tra- goes, booby traps! Or no, wait, did he did say you booby traps? Did I, you say booby traps? Yes, yeah, I said booby traps! <laughs> that's yeah. what I said, that's what I said! I'm sorry. This, this is supposed it. to be a serious moment. Here I am bringing up the Goonies. That's alright. Um, but... I guess my take after reading that was just the fact that like Silka's weapons were so inferior to what the state troopers had and the super intense two seconds of fighting kind of brought back that same vibe. I don't know. I couldn't really find anything else on how else it would be comparative to Vietnam, but that's what the troopers compared it to. With Silka dead, the next action was to try and find the bodies of the missing people. And judging by the drag marks and blood patterns of the boat landing, troopers believe that Silka shot and killed Joey and Dale shortly after they arrived, but had not had time to hide their bodies before the other victims started to arrive as well. So that kind of goes back to what I said, like we don't know exactly what time the other people showed up, but Mm -hmm. with this assumption, we can kind of assume it was like back to back. Mm -hmm. They were pretty close together. Um, So they believe that he shot all of his victims to cover his tracks and dumped their bodies in the river. I personally think that he would have killed anyone to arrive that day. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that he really cared about covering his tracks, um, mainly because he left blood and shell casings all over the boat landing. Mm -hmm. His car was still there. He had been loitering around the town for days. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just don't think he really cared. I think. He was there for that reason. And it didn't seem like he cleaned up the crime scene at the other murder no. either. No. So, I mean, he seems, he sounds very sloppy. Oh, very. And like that arrogant, that arrogant kind of killer where mm-hmm. they just, 
they're just they evade the law for so long, which he had in Illinois. I mean, mm-hmm. every time he got in trouble, it was n- hardly anything. Four days. Yeah. I mean, four days is the most he did. And so I think he was just, he thought he could get away with it. So Lyman Klein, Dale Majetsky, Joey McVeigh were all, and Joey McVeigh, excuse me, were all recovered from the river. Joe Burke's body washed up on the riverbanks about 70 miles downstream, 75 miles downstream, and was actually found by his own wife who had been looking for him. Oh, God. I know. His pregnant wife? Is this one? No, this is the one who was left at the campground, who didn't find out until a little bit later. Okay. Yeah. Joyce Klein, her unborn child, so that's the pregnant mama, and her two-year-old son, Marshall, and Albert Hagen were never found. They were believed to have been lost in the river, they, so they don't think that he dumped them anywhere else. He thinks that they dumped, he dumped them the same way. They also have never found Roger Culp's body from Fairbanks. Yeah. It was probably a polar bear or something that drug it off. <laughs> I like, know. It took them nine days. It took her, it took the woman nine days to even come forward. Yeah. So. Well, and with as rural the area is, if he dumped them in the river, I mean, if you wash up on shore, it's going to take hours before wolves, bears, all of the animals come out, out of the woodworks to eat them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you gotta survive. Yeah. Um, there is talk that Silka may have had at least two other victims as well. Mm-hmm. Um, many people came forward after the fact and saw that when he first arrived to the Manly area that he had two people with him thinking they're possibly hitchhikers. Um, and no one ever saw them after the first encounter. So they yeah. saw him with Manly and then they never saw him again. Hopefully they got out of there. Hopefully. Um, but nobody's ever really come forward to say that they were them. Were them. Maybe it's just such a rural area that yeah. they didn't know that people were looking for them. Yeah. Well, and if they're hitchhikers, they may like purposely trying to stay away from the law and stay out of the limelight. So you never know. But troopers do believe that um, if he did kill them, he likely buried them somewhere in the woods and they'd never be found. So like I said a little bit earlier, there does not seem to be an exact reason for Michael Silka to have become such a monster. Um, again, no reported like English, English. <laughs> enemies, yes. no reported enemies. Um, and for whatever reason, he completely lost it when he got to Alaska. I mean, he had like had run-ins with the law, but nothing violent like this. He had not attacked anyone. He had the, the assault charge on the military base, but... Other than that, he never attacked anyone like this. Um, and when he got to complete to Alaska, he killed seven out of seventy residents in a single village. He killed a tenth of the population. That is ten percent of the population of that town. Dude, I know. That's insane. <laughs> I know. Like, you think of seven people as not being that many, but in a town like that, it is. So, people from his past described Michael as a good kid, just a typical teenager who loved the outdoors. And his father requested that his ashes be buried in the National Cemetery in Sitka to honor his military service after he had been honorably discharged. No. Yes. No. Manly residents were pissed. Do I'm pissed. <laughs> yeah. They were so upset. They petitioned. Um, the military ended up accepting the request, and he is currently buried in the National Cemetery in Sitka in an unmarked grave. Of course it's unmarked. Yeah. They're going to be pissed if they find out about this, and then they'd go desecrate the grave. Yeah, I know. And you can't have that in a national cemetery. You shouldn't have him <laughs> in a national cemetery. Like I totally agree. Oh, I am distressed. Tat, come here. <laughs> Yep, so that's the story of Michael Silka and the seven people he murdered. Wow. Yep, in cold blood, because Alaska's cold. <laughs> oh my god. Are we going to start adding puns to each episode? I, we have to. Okay. It's the best part. We'll come up with a, a pun, a pun person. <laughs> a pun a person. Should we tell them how to find us? Yes, of course. You can find us on Patreon. We are Killer Country Podcast on Patreon. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Killer Country Podcast. And if you want to send in your campfire stories, we will read them on a campfire stories episode. So that's what have you experienced? Have you encountered something crazy on the road? 
Um, that's what we want to hear from. And if you want to, you can send those in to Killer Country Podcast at gmail.com. Yep, so that was killercountrypodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you guys go on some road trips and visit these places. Go see, I guess, the unmarked grave. <laughs> Don't go see the unmarked grave. He does not need any type of publicity. It. He does not deserve it. He does not. Um, but do go see the backwoods of Alaska. Highly recommend. The Aurora Borealis for me. Pet a polar bear, please. Don't pet a polar bear. Did you know? <laughs> Interesting fact. Polar bear's fur is not white. I did know this. Dang it. I, I hate when people know that because I like feeling <laughs> so incredibly intelligent. And neither is their skin. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and they have I'm sorry. Okay, for those people that do not know, a polar bear's skin is black and their fur is actually clear, mm-hmm. see-through, however yep. you want to say it. <laughs> so, <sighs> this is... on my fire. <laughs> this is the Discovery Channel with Gates and Kelsey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>